electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to Tech Check in progress. We're over accounting rules, and this, that's what this was. And yep. we now have to consider that exact question, uh, and that, that's what we're doing. I can't, really, I can't really say more because we are working our way through it. But I, I, my understanding of it is the same as yours, though, which is custody assets are, 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 are off balance sheet, ha, have always been. But this is, you know, the SEC made a different decision as it relates to digital assets for reasons it explained, and now we have to consider those. Yeah, and thank you. I encourage you to, uh, to, to consider that and appreciate that you're looking at it and you're aware of it. That's great. So I'll turn to master accounts now, of course. Uh, the board and the reserve banks have refused to provide Congress and the public with transparency with regard to the application process. Um, at its core, um, a master account is a public benefit conferred by the Fed to a private institution. And since a master account is a public benefit, really doesn't the public have a right to know which institutions have master accounts and which have applied for accounts and not received them? Uh, both the FDIC and the OCC publicly list similar application information on their websites today. Um, so could you commit as part of a transparency uh, project uh, to make publicly available a list of institutions that have received master accounts as well as the institutions that have applied and not received them. So I'll be glad to look into that. I, you know our system well, and it really is that the, the Fed, the, the board, you know, we set rules, but the, but the reserve banks really make the decisions about granting accounts subject to those rules, and we're trying, we actually think we can improve on that system with the current proposal we have, and are considering comments on that right now, as I'm sure you know very well. Yeah, and, so. and as you also know that um, applicants for master accounts are getting whipsawed between the Federal Reserve Board of Governors and the banks, uh, that one says that, uh, the, the Federal Reserve says to, says that the, the banks have all of the authority they need, meaning Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City and others have all of the uh, authority they need to make these decisions. And yet you go to the reserve banks and they say, oh no, we're waiting for uh, the, the Board of Governors. And so there's a whipsaw effect and we get no answer. The, the black hole continues to exist. And, uh, you know, my frustration level has long since uh, been at a boiling point. It continues to be at a boiling point. There's no responsiveness. It's a black hole. And uh, I wish to just once again use this opportunity uh, to encourage you to address that. It is, it, it, there's just no excuse. There's no, there's no excuse anymore, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Lemus, uh, Senator Van Holland of Maryland is recognized. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Welcome, uh, Chairman Powell. I, I can't let an opportunity go by without raising the issue of the FedNow real-time payments uh, system implementation. 
you would agree that if we can get this system into place, it will save millions of Americans billions of dollars, would you not? Yes, I would. And so that's why I just want to encourage you to move very quickly. Uh, as you know, the system is uh, scheduled to go up next year. Uh, we had an earlier hearing um, in May in this committee, and uh, Brookings Senior Fellow Aaron Klein, who spent a lot of time monitoring uh, this system uh, shared his concern that uh, we weren't moving fast enough uh, to hit that date and fully implement it. So I just want your commitment, Mr. Chairman, that you are focused on this and that it is a priority. Uh, very much so. We're, we're very focused on doing, doing it right and also on time, and okay. that's next year. Right, because it especially impacts, of course, people living paycheck to paycheck, right, who, who make a deposit in a bank but it doesn't clear, uh, and then they get uh, tagged with all sorts of over charge fees and things like that. So I, I just, you know, other countries that are um, a lot less advanced in terms of technology, the United States have figured this out and we should be, we should be there now. Um, I just want to turn to really uh, the issue of the day, which is this uh, challenge in, in navigating uh, between keeping a strong economy moving and low unemployment uh, and dealing with uh, price uh, stability. Uh, on the good news front, and I think you've testified to this earlier, the United States um, is doing a lot better uh, than our sort of near-peer economies when it comes to economic growth and quickly reducing our unemployment rate. Isn't that the case? Yes, generally. We're, we're further advanced in our, in our recovery, I would say. Yeah. So that's, that's good news, and we, we want to keep that going. Um, we also obviously want to deal with the price increases. And, you know, the concern which has been shared by others this morning is that many of the causes of those price increases uh, are beyond the control of the Fed. And I call them the three Ps, Putin's war, pandemic supply chain disruptions, uh, price gouging, Senator Cortez Masta raised that. And so I think the challenge is how do you navigate increases in interest rates when a lot of the drivers of price increases are beyond your control. And I, I want to raise a specific kind of case study here, which is in the housing uh, market. Uh, because you would agree, would you not, that increasing the supply of housing can help reduce housing prices, right? Sure. Yeah. Uh, but when you, what we're seeing now is that uh, with rising interest rates, obviously new investments uh, are more expensive, uh, we've seen housing starts fall by 14% in May. So that means fewer housing opportunities, less supply, uh, fewer workers um, engaged in building new homes. So if you could just use that as a sort of case study of how you're going to navigate these cross currents. Um, so interest sensitive spending is a, is a very important aspect of how our tools work. And in the case of uh, the housing market, what you're seeing is higher mortgage rates. So you're actually seeing demand move down quite significantly. Uh, uh, many, many indicators suggest that fewer people are visiting homes. The wait time for uh, selling a home is increasing. Housing, housing sales are moving down. Housing starts are moving down. And uh, over, overall, uh, it's, a, it's a slowing in the housing market. And um, I, I think what you will see, or the for, many forecasts call uh, for the increase in housing prices to slow pretty significantly now. You've seen very, very large, as you know, uh, increases in housing prices over the la really since the beginning of the pandemic, and to the point where 
you know, all over the country you have uh, housing, you know, people, you know, five bids above the ask uh, the second the house comes on the market. Well, that's cooling off now to a more sustainable pace. So what we hope is we can get, get demand, to, to that part of the economy to slow to a more sustainable pace and get housing, get get the housing market back on a, on a more sustainable path where there's a better balance between supply and demand. I appreciate that. I'm just going to use my remaining time to sort of push you a little further on this issue, not specifically with housing, but given the fact that so many of the factors that are driving price increases are beyond our control, and you talked about core um, inflation. What is your confidence level that we will have what is generally referred to as a soft landing, where we won't overcorrect in raising our interest rates to the point that it begins to really hurt our economy, workers, and wages? What is your level of confidence that you can um, navigate a soft landing for the economy? I mean, it, it is our goal. Uh, it is going to be very challenging. It has been made significantly more challenging by the events of the last few months, thinking there of the war and uh, you know, commodities prices and, and further problems with supply chains. And the, the, the question of whether we're able to, to, to accomplish that is going to depend uh, to some extent on factors that we don't control. Well, Mr. But Chairman, the, yeah, is, if I could, the, but, th but this, is, this is the point I think many of us are making. The factors that are out of your control are not going to be susceptible to those costs being brought down, oil, gas, I heard you early, food, by the, by the measures you're taking. And, and the risk is that the measures you're taking will slow down other parts of the economy without getting us the benefit of lower prices. So uh, I think that is a big theme today, and I just um, look forward to continuing our conversation about how you're going to thread that needle. Can I, can I say the, that the, the other risk, though, is that we would not manage to restore price stability and that we would allow this high inflation to get entrenched in our economy. And we know from history that that, that will hurt the people we'd like to help, the people in the lower income spectrum uh, you know, who suffer now from high inflation. That will hurt them more than anyone. So that we, we can't fail on that task. We, we have to get back to 2% inflation so that we can have the kind of labor market that we really want. I appreciate that, Mr. Chairman, but as you know, the prices that people are experiencing most vividly day-to-day -day is the price of gas at the pump and the price at food at the grocery store, both of which are things that you've said right. are beyond your control. So uh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Thanks, Chairman. Thanks, Chairman. Senator Daines from Montana is recognized for five minutes. Mr. Chairman, thank you. Um, Powell, good to see you here today. Like my colleagues, I continue to be deeply concerned with the inflation we're seeing in the economy and its real-life impact on Montana families. When I go back home, I hear the top three concerns from Montanans. It's inflation, it's inflation, it's inflation. It's the price of gas, it's the price of groceries. CPI inflation grew 8.6% year-over-year in May, the highest increase since December of 1981. In Montana and other mountain states, as you're aware, inflation grew by 9.4% versus a year earlier. This rate of inflation is unsustainable for Montanans and Americans alike. And for months, for months, Republicans in Congress and even some Democrats, like former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, warned of the massive inflationary risk of the $2 trillion March of 2021 stimulus package 
with that post, the economy. In fact, just pulled up the Washington Post article <clears throat> from March 29th, 2021. I remember being in this very room, similar hearings, warning, warning our colleagues about the risks of moving through a $2 trillion spending package when we had a trillion dollars of unspent COVID money still remaining in December of the prior year. Let me quote from that Washington Post article. It says, Summers, of course, now remember Secretary Treasurer Clinton and uh, economic advisor to Barack Obama, a Democrat, Summers, 60, age 66, who drafted economic blueprints for the past two Democratic presidents and was a top candidate to lead the Federal Reserve Board under President Obama, has emerged in recent weeks as the loudest critic of President Biden's approach to reviving the pandemic-era U.S. economy. The Harvard University professor who advised Biden for a time last summer warns, and this is key, that the president's stimulus plan may trigger the highest inflation in more than half a century and could cost Democrats the chance to make lasting investments in the economy. There were many of us warning the administration and our colleagues across the aisle of blindly moving forward on a purely partisan basis to jam through that $2 trillion package and the inflationary risk associated with it. Now with inflation at a 40-year high, these same Democrats are continuing their ill-advised effort to revise President Biden's sweeping build back broke package, no matter the warning signs that are flashing right now in all of our faces. Chairman Powell, Mr. Summers has suggested several years of greater than 5% unemployment might be necessary to contain inflation. Would you agree with that assessment? I, uh, I guess I would say that um, I don't want to comment on other people's, on other forecast generally, but my assessment is that uh, uh, it, it's going to depend to a significant extent, extent on factors like how long does the war run and how long does it take supply chains to, uh, to improve and that kind of thing. There's a lot of uncertainty around that. I would have a lot of humility about trying to, you know, predict with any clarity exactly where the economy is going to be in, you know, the next three years, for example. But my, my assessment, though, is that um, there's certainly paths to get inflation down uh, to 2% uh, with, uh, with outcomes that are uh, substantially less you know, troubling than, than what you just read. You've uh, characterized a soft landing as getting back to 2% inflation while keeping the labor market strong. What's your confidence that the Fed can achieve this goal without causing a recession? So I think that is our goal. That's, that's our intention. Um, I think it's going to be very challenging. Uh, we've never said it was going to be easy or straightforward. It's going to be challenging, and, and uh, the events of the last few months have certainly made it more challenging. And uh, nonetheless, there are pathways through which that could happen. And in particular, um, what we saw in, in the, the early part of 2021 when inflation went up was uh, very strong demand surged against what were unanticipated supply-side constraints, and the result was prices went up a lot, much more than could be explained by just the, the increase in demand. And so, in principle, if demand can move back down, then inflation could move back, back, back along that path just as quickly as it went up, in principle. No one's guaranteeing that, but the idea is this is not the same 
it, you know, you, there are relationships in the economy for how quickly inflation would move uh, compared to demand moving. This could be an unusual situation because we have, we have had what is in effect a vertical supply curve where there isn't any more supply or a very steep supply curve. So you get really sharp uh, increases in prices. You could get sharp declines for the same reason. So that, that could be a difference. Uh, and I, I think we'll find out, ideally. Um, but ultimately, we need to see progress on the supply side. And we're not waiting for it. You know, we, Our job and our tools work on demand. And, and that's what we're working on now, is getting demand down to a more sustainable level so that supply can catch up and is in better balance with demand. Chairman Powell, thank you. Thank you, Senator Daines. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Uh, <clears throat> Senator Ossoff, on behalf of the chair. Thank you, Senator Tillis. Uh, Mr. Chairman, welcome back. Um, let me say to the outset, uh, you have an extraordinarily challenging job in extraordinarily complex times, uh, and um, much of what you are responding to and adapting to is beyond your control. Uh, your success is the country's success to a significant extent. It's the world's success, and uh, I fervently hope for your success and appreciate your continued efforts. I'd like to ask you uh, to specify, if you can, what transmission mechanisms you believe are most sensitive right now to the change in monetary policy, uh, what forms of consumption you expect to be most sensitive to it, um, and the extent to which you anticipate that uh, some of the effects that you hope to have on aggregate demand through the increase in rates uh, are transmitted via financial markets, and if so, how? So I, I guess I would say three basic channels through which our, our tools work. The first would be interest-sensitive spending. So that's, that's durables, including cars and things like that, durable goods. Uh, housing, for example. Uh, so when rates go up, uh, spending on those uh, purchases, which tend to be financed with debt, will be restrained. That, that's one major, major channel. Um, the second is just asset prices generally across the economy. When interest rates go up, uh, it raises the cost of holding assets. It can cause uh, assets, again, broadly across the economy to either moderate their growth or decline somewhat in value. And that has an effect on a broad effect across the economy on spending on, on everything. The third channel is really the exchange rate, which you can think of as, as another asset price. But that, that also uh, you know, has the effect of, of pressing down on inflation. So we look at all of those. Starting with the first one, you, you know, we, you can see um, 
we just talked about the housing market. The housing market is the classic part of the economy that's very sensitive to, uh, to interest rates. And you, you're going to see a moderation in housing demand. You're going to see declining uh, or slower increases, at least, in housing prices. So those are the, those are the three main channels I would point to. Let me ask about on, uh, in terms of asset prices uh, and how financial markets are responding to the Fed's stance. Uh, I've consistently asked you and, and Secretary Yellen when you appear before the committee to talk about systemic risks, risk to financial stability, um, risk of financial contagion. Uh, where you're moving swiftly and markets are volatile, there are perhaps uh, institutional trades that could rapidly unwind or exotic financial instruments that no longer function well. Uh, what do you anticipate to be the uh, parts of capital markets now or the phenomena in capital markets that present the greatest risk to financial stability as the Fed takes the aggressive action that you're taking? Well, I would, I'd start by saying that the banking system is very strong, well-capitalized, highly liquid, um, does a much better job of understanding the risks it, it runs and managing them than before the global financial crisis. And that's, that's a reflection of the work that regulators did and that the banks did, too. So that part of the financial system is, is critically v very strong. And, and we saw that through the pandemic, and we, and we see it now. Well, to your point, though, capital markets did show uh, real periods of illiquidity during the, um, during the immediate aftermath of the pandemic. And so we've been looking at ways, we, I say broadly, the yep. regulatory community has been looking at ways to address that. Um, so you remain concerned about money markets? Well, that's a different, so money markets are, that's a, that's a, a part of the economy which, uh, where, where it has become illiquid uh, because the assets that they were invested in were, were not able to be turned into cash quickly to, to fund depositors wanting to take their money back. So we, we stepped in and had to provide that liquidity for the second time. There are reforms going on there at the SEC which should address that, and, um, and they're in the process of being uh, considered and then implemented. So that should help on that front. I was thinking more of the Treasury market, for example, where, uh, which it became illiquid when, at the very beginning when people wanted nothing but cash, nothing but the, sh the cash and most cash-like things. Treasury market has been functioning, though, all through this period when we've very significantly changed the stance of monetary policy. So markets have been functioning well, reasonably well. And, um, and Okay, my time is running short, and I uh, appreciate that. We'll probably follow up to talk a little bit more about financial risk. With my remaining few seconds, uh, let me ask you this. How would you characterize um, the share of responsibility, if you will, on the supply side versus the demand side for the elevated price levels over the last year? Um, to what extent do you believe that you mentioned the supply curve being steeper than expected, and so the uh, uh, increased durable goods demand and consumer demand having a, a greater than expected uh, effect on prices. Right now, is the principal driver of the increase in the price level elevated consumer demand, elevated demand, or is it supply constraints? I know we're facing both, but I'm asking you to allocate, as you can, some share to each phenomenon. Yeah, I just would say it's clearly uh, both factors are, are principally at work here. You, you couldn't get this kind of high inflation without strong demand, and you certainly couldn't get it without the kind of supply issues that we've had, both in the labor market reflected in high wages and then in, in the goods market reflected in what's happened with, with uh, um, 
durable goods. And, and cars in particular, you look there, there's a, it's been this, driven by a semiconductor shortage. Thank you, Chair Powell. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. On behalf of the Chair, Senator Moran. Mr. Chairman, thank you. Uh, Chairman Powell, uh, thank you for your presence here today. Uh, let me start just by uh, making certain that I tell you something that I think I need to say on behalf of Kansans. I've never seen the level of anxiety, uncertainty, concern for the future as I see today when I have conversations with folks uh, in my neighborhood and across Kansas. There's a sense that something's not right. Inflation is a significant component of that feeling. And the inability to know what's around the corner is terribly damaging to folks, both financially but also mentally or psychologically. There's a real circumstance out there that I want you as the chairman and your colleagues to know uh, exists. Uh, it is. I think uncertainty and, and what the future holds is one of the most damaging things when people try to figure out uh, their lives and how comfortable they are. I also want to highlight a, a particular Kansas, but middle America across the country issue of agriculture. Um, I was on a farm uh, on Saturday uh, participating in, observing harvest of wheat. We live in a world in which people are starving and more are going to starve um, if we are unable to, uh, if we fail to get more grain into markets from Ukraine and from Russia, but from the United States as well. Uh, agriculture farming is a noble calling and it has a lot to do with being able to feed people who are now desperate. Uh, part of the concern in regard to agriculture is a is the interest rates have a significant consequence to the profitability, to the survivability of, uh, of producers. Uh, and um, profit margins get squeezed if uh, interest rates continue to climb. climb. We face uh, declining or, or lower land values. That creates greater access to credit challenges. Tell me how you see uh, one, how, how I can assure my Kansans that, and Americans that things are going to be better, and two, how can I assure farmers and ranchers that their future will be brighter based upon the activities of the Federal Reserve? So I, I take the, um, the sort of very low confidence readings that we're reading about and, and your comments about Kansas citizens as being pretty directly related to high inflation. And I think people haven't seen it. You know, mo most people, you and I, are old enough to remember what it was like. And it's, you know, it's it's something that uh, it, it just really does uh, destroy public confidence in in the economy and that kind of thing. So we need to get uh, inflation back down to two percent. And all I can say is we're, you know, we're using our tools to do that. And uh, the public should believe that we will get inflation back down to two percent over time. Again, there are factors that we don't control, but those factors do tend to wash out over time. Things like commodity prices don't tend to just keep going up. They may remain high, but they essentially they're quite volatile over time. That's what the record shows. So I, we, there, we will, we're doing what we can to get inflation down, the parts that we can address. So I, I, for whatever that's worth, that's, that's what we can do and what we will do. In terms of the agricultural patch, um, as you know, we have, uh, uh, including your Kansas uh, City Fed president, we have some terrific people who are Reserve Bank presidents who give us a good sense of what's going on in the agricultural sector. 
uh, on an ongoing basis. And it's obviously a very, very difficult time with fertilizer prices and difficulty in getting all kinds of inputs. And um, it's just a very challenging time in, in the agricultural world. We do understand that. Um, our part of it is to, is to do what we can to get inflation back under control. I know higher interest rates are painful, but that's the tool we have to moderate demand and get uh, demand and supply back into balance so that inflation can come down. Mr. Chairman, in a conversation you and I had on the phone, you indicated that, it, as you did today, there are certain aspects of inflation that you have little control over. One of them, I think you mentioned, was energy. Uh, let me be reassured, if you would, that there are no, that, that there will not be uh, actions by the Federal Reserve to make lending to fossil fuel producers a component of the policies of the Federal Reserve. Uh, when you say you have little to do with it, you could cause great damage if you decide uh, to go down a path that was at least contemplated by a number of nominees for the Federal Reserve Board. And I would love to be reassured that's not a component that we would that you would pursue, and that we would not see resulting increasing a cost of fuel as a result of federal policy, yeah. federal reserve policy. In my view, and I think the view of what well, my view certainly is that it's not our job to allocate credit to or against or away from any particular sector of the economy. That's a job for elected officials or for markets, if, uh, but it's, it's not a job for, for the Federal Reserve, which has a mandate to you know, pursue maximum employment, price stability, a well-regulated banking system, and a, you know, and a sound payment system. Mr. Chairman, thank you. On behalf of the Chair, Senator Warnock. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chair, and uh, thank you, Chairman Powell, uh, for being uh, here again today. Georgia is in a serious housing crisis, and uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta has designated owning a home in Atlanta as unaffordable to the average home buyer. But it's not just a city problem. Uh, it's urban, it's rural. Harrelson County, a county with a population of less than 30,000, is also rated as unaffordable. In the midst of this housing crisis, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank, which has uh, a tough mandate and a tough time of uh, managing um, inflation has raised the federal funds rate by 0.75%. This means mortgages are about to get a lot more expensive for families. Chairman Powell, as the Fed raises its interest rates, what is the Fed doing to prevent this rate increase from further exacerbating uh, the housing crisis? Well. So by raising rates, um, we're clear, you're, what you're seeing is a slowing housing market now. You're seeing because of, because of higher interest rates, mortgage rates have gone up pretty substantially, and you're seeing a slowing in the housing market. And that should mean, one of the things that should mean is that housing prices should stop going up at such remarkably rapid rates. Since the beginning of the pandemic, we've had um, you know, a very, very hot labor mar uh, sorry, housing market all around the country, and you know what what should take place is as demand moderates in the in uh, demand for housing moderates for new for new and existing homes, you should see prices stop going up quite so fast. You're also uh, also going to see uh, fewer home sales and just a, just generally a, a lower rate of activity in the housing market. Um, 
So really what needs, what needs to happen is housing supply and demand need to get back into better alignment. Um, and, you know, the part of that that we can control is really, is really by moderating demand so that prices stop going up quite so much and that we can get back to a, a housing market where supply and demand are. Now, we, we don't control supply, and there, there's all, there are issues in this country around housing supply. Um, it's harder to get land and lots and things like that. It's harder to get people to work. So there, there are supply-side constraints if you meet with builders from around the country. They will tell you that we have a longer-term issue as a country around creating enough housing supply. That is not something that the Federal Reserve can do anything about, but it is an important issue. Right. Notwithstanding that, mortgages are clearly, at least in the short term, uh, about to get more expensive. And it seems to me that what would be helpful is if the Congress would pass my Down Payment Toward Equity Act uh, to help first-generation home buyers afford their first home. What effects do you expect the Fed's interest rate increases will have on the, well, let me put it this uh, another way. The Federal Reserve helps enforce the, the Fair Housing Act and the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. What plans do you have to ensure that as interest rates increase, everyone still has access to a fair, reasonable price mortgage? So the higher interest rates don't change our very important obligations under fair, the fair credit laws that we enforce. And so we'll continue to enforce those, um, you know, transparently and, and uh, aggressively. Um, uh, it, 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 is, it is true, though, that mortgage rates have gone up, and, and that will slow down demand, and that will be that there, there's some pain involved in that for people paying higher mortgage rates, and also some people will be priced out of the mortgage market. But that is ultimately what, we, what needs to happen if we are to get back to price stability to a place where people's wages aren't being eaten up by inflation. So the the pain the greatest pain would be if we if we allow this high inflation to just continue. Uh, yeah, I it, guess it will be right. Yeah. Right, and I guess my my point is that in in the meantime, the folks who are on the margins of the marketplace in the first place. We the issue is how do we protect them as much as possible. R related to that, uh, when Secretary Yellen was here, she stated that the Federal Reserve needed to not only be skillful, but she said, "quote lucky." lucky to ensure, quote, a soft landing. I, I don't like counting on luck uh, when the economic safety of Georgians, particularly those at the margins, is at risk, which is why I'm doing what I can uh, here in the Senate. I've introduced a couple of bills to lower the price of gas, to lower the cost of groceries and other everyday goods, to cap the cost of insulin and other medication. Uh, and I've held the White House accountable to pursue investigation of price gouging of ocean carriers. and. I've supported bipartisan legislation addressing the same issue that just became law. How, how can Congress lower costs for Georgia families? And what steps can Congress take to support the Fed and ensure a soft landing? So I, I guess I'd be reluctant to give you uh, advice uh, while we're, we're trying so hard to do the job that you've actually assigned us, which is to get inflation back down. But. Uh, um, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, uh, I think those are those are authorities that those of you who run for elected office have, and we don't have as as mere appointees. So that's really up to you. But you, you would agree that the folks at at the margins of the economy are feeling the most pressure and pain, and that has to be addressed. I I think that's that's always the case, and in the case of inflation, it does it, it's. Um, 
it's really that if you're if you're spending every dollar that you're intaking on the bare essentials of life, and they and the the cost of them goes up ten percent, you're in trouble right away. Right. Whereas middle class people and and people better off than that, they've got some resources, some ability to deal with it. So. That's, but that's why it's such a priority to, for us to get on top of inflation before it does become entrenched. Inflation's only now been around for, you know, we've been, it really didn't start until March of last year. So it's, it's not at all too late for us to, to get this job done and get back onto the kind of path we all want to be on. Thank you so much. I'm concerned about this, and it's why in the meantime I've introduced several bills to lower the cost for essential items like gas and groceries and, and medication. Thank you for your testimony. Thank you, Senator. On behalf of the chair, Senator Sinema, I think, will join virtually. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Chairman Powell, for joining us today. And congratulations on your recent reconfirmation. You know, the inflation numbers continue to be concerning, and this is the number one issue I've been hearing about from Arizonans. Families and small businesses are paying higher prices, and they need relief from soaring inflation so they can make ends meet. But we also know that this is not only a U.S. problem. Countries around the world, both big and small, are also seeing high inflation. So how is the U.S. position relative to other countries with respect to inflation? Um, I'd say our, our level of inflation is broadly comparable to that of other major economies. You saw Canada uh, released their inflation number today. It's not far from where ours are. Same with the Western European democracies and the United Kingdom. Um, uh, but the, but there's, there are different compositions. So the, I would say generally, to generalize, in the United States, our inflation is, has more of a demand-driven component, whereas in, in Europe, it is more to a greater extent, driven by very high energy prices, for example. Um, although in the, the United Kingdom kind of has, uh, has a mix of, of both of those. We also have high energy prices here. So the levels are similar, but the, the composition is, is a little bit different here in the United States. Well, thank you. You know, crypto markets have experienced substantial volatility in the past several weeks. Has the Fed been tracking these events, and what implications do they have for how the Fed is viewing the broader economic outlook and making decisions with respect to monetary policy. We are, we are tracking those uh, events very carefully, of course, and you know not really seeing significant macroeconomic implications um, so far. And uh, uh, but um, I, I think the principal implication is is really what we've been saying and others have been saying for some time, which is that in this um, very innovative new space. Uh, really, there's a need for um, uh, for a, a, a better regulatory framework that treats, you know, it, 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 the same activity should have the same regulation no matter where it appears, and that isn't the case right now because a lot of the a lot of the uh, digital finance products are, in some ways, quite similar to products that had existed in the banking system or the capital markets, but they're just they're not regulated the same way. So we need to do that, and I think. I think that that uh, is uh, the main takeaway I would have. Mm. What is an appropriate proportion of current U.S. inflation to assign to Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine, and how are you thinking about these events in the context of setting monetary policy? Well, I would say that you know the, the the increase in commodity prices are are clearly connected to to the war in Ukraine, um, and uh, 
so that that part of inflation um, um, would be certainly much lower uh, if uh, than it is without the war in Ukraine. And you know, there really, there's nothing that our tools our tools work on demand, and there's a job for our tools to do here. There is a there is a, a job to moderate demand so that it can be in better balance with supply. But it, it wouldn't. Uh, we we don't think that we have the answer to higher oil prices, uh, you know, due to the global um, oil situation. Mm. I know the Fed tracks the core personal consumption expenditures <clears throat> index closely when thinking about monetary policy. Many trends in our economy, including a big shift towards technology and e-commerce, accelerated during the first year of the pandemic, and it's possible that the indicators and weights used to measure inflation may need to be revised to accurately measure inflation as Americans are experiencing it. So we all know inflation is high, but how high it is matters to ensure that we have an appropriate response. Congress and the Fed should make decisions based off the best information that most accurately reflects the challenges that families and businesses are facing. Have you given thought to this issue? Well, um, yes, in the sense that um, we, you know, we look very carefully at the way um, the way we measure inflation in this country, we actually use personal consumption expenditures, which is a little different and, and uh, a better approach, we think, than the more traditional consumer price index. Uh, this was a change we made about 20 years ago, and I think economists generally think that PCE inflation does uh, a better job of measuring the inflation that people are actually experiencing in their lives. So that, that is what we do, and we keep it updated, you know, it, the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, government agency that, that manages it, keeps it updated on a regular basis. So we think that's the right, uh, the right approach in terms of measuring inflation. Of course, we look at CPI as well, um, but uh, we've, we've chosen to, to, to make PCE inflation our, our principal uh, measuring stick. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Uh, Senator Menendez of New Jersey is recognized. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Chairman Power, I want to start on the issue of diversity at the Fed. Uh, I have a letter that we sent you yesterday and signed by nine senators, including five members of this committee, urging you to undertake a number of simple reforms to the process for selecting bank presidents and Class B directors. That process has to include meaningful transparency and public engagement if we are ever going to have Fed leadership that truly represents the public as required by the Federal Reserve Act. So I'll wait for your written response, because we just sent that letter, on the details of those proposed reforms. But for now, can I have your commitment that you'll provide us with a substantive response by July the 22nd? Yes. Thank you. And also, will you commit to work with me 
to put in place real, meaningful changes to the process so we can have a broader array of voices to the Fed leadership? Uh, I'll commit to, to having a, a frank discussion with you about that and, and what, what could be. We're open to ideas of how to improve. As you point out in your letter, we've, you know, it's not like we haven't made tremendous strides as it relates to the B and C directors in the course of the last 10 years. We really have. And the, the, the diversity numbers are, are, I think, quite impressive for the B and C directors. The A directors, as you point out in your letter, less so, but those are appointed by the bankers in the district. Uh, but we, we can have this conversation. Well, I look forward okay. to it. Less so, but uh, it's not. It's worse than less so. I mean, you don't have one bank president in the history of the Federal Reserve who's been Hispanic. That's, that's, that's far worse than less so. I was talking about directors, but yeah. you, you're right about, you're right about, uh, about that. I and, and there was a tremendous opportunity, and it didn't happen. Um, I just continue. Uh, you know, I, I feel like I'm the lone... Uh, effort on this, but 62 million Hispanic Americans who represent $2 trillion of domestic uh, purchasing power uh, deserve a seat at where some of the most important economic decisions are being made. Uh, so we look forward to uh, the engagement that you've uh, said that you're willing to engage in. Now, um, I am trying to find out, as others have raised with you, uh, there's no question that painfully high inflation is affecting every family in America. But in order to develop the right response, we need to understand the underlying factors that are driving price increases. Um, I think you've said here today that uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, pandemic-related supply chain issues are perhaps, uh, and the energy issues that flow from Russia's invasion of Ukraine are perhaps uh, some of the biggest factors in driving inflation. But the question is, how is it that raising interest rates on those underlying causes of today's inflation uh, ultimately are going to change it? You know, energy is still energy. Um, supply chain is still supply chain. Uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a continuing challenge for, uh, for the world. But there's nothing about uh, interest rates that's going to affect any of that. No, but, but notwithstanding that, there, there, is, there are major parts of the economy where the demand exceeds supply meaningfully, and that's where our tools have a job to do, where we can moderate demand and give supply time to recover so that supply and demand get back into better balance and inflation comes down. Well, it seems to me that we can all recognize that raising interest rates is a blunt tool uh, at the end of the day. But I'm looking, going back to the beginning of my questioning, uh, it's essential, I believe, to be mindful of the effects that your actions, your meaning the Federal Reserve, will have on unemployment, particularly for those groups that were hit hardest by the pandemic. The Fed's latest monetary policy report states that, quote, Employment for blacks and Hispanics not only declined by more uh, than that for whites and Asians early in the pandemic, uh, but also recovered more quickly since the end of last year. Now that we're potentially entering a period of larger and more frequent interest rate increases, what do you expect will happen to the unemployment rates of black and Hispanic workers relative to the population as a whole? It'll depend on, the, on what happens to the overall unemployment rate. Um, and, you know, our goal is to achieve 2% inflation while still keeping the labor market strong. That's, that's our intention with this. 
Well, I, I appreciate what your intention is, but I would venture to say uh, that what we will see is what we have seen in the past, that crisis after crisis disproportionately harms Americans of color. Uh, so I hope the Fed's response to inflation doesn't continue that trend, because it is woefully wrong that one group of Americans disproportionately faces consequences of policy decisions versus the rest of America. And this is another reason to have people at the Federal Reserve who represent this community to share those insights uh, with the Fed as you determine these macro policies that are going to affect our communities disproportionately. Thank you, Senator Menendez. Senator Tillis. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, Chair Powell, in response to a question from Senator Warner and a question from Senator Sinema, uh, Senator Warner more or less asserted that we're all in the same boat in terms of inflation globally, but you made the point uh, on two different occasions that uh, what's driving inflation in, in largely Europe, a little bit less so in the UK, has to do with spiraling uh, energy prices. Could you talk a little bit about, beyond the pain at the gas pump and the increased cost of transportation, how increasing, uh, and I should say, and I, I believe that Europe is where they are, uh, this is not for you to comment on, uh, because they moved a little bit too aggressively and didn't look at resiliency with some of their uh, their energy inputs uh, that were largely affected by the Russia invasion. But could you talk a little bit about the other, uh, the other commodities that are affected by rising interest rate. I'm we're talking about housing, and we know that pipes, a number of inputs to housing construction, have gone up. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the market basket of other commodities that are that are influenced by increasing uh, energy prices? I think energy prices go in go into a lot an awful lot of different uh, places in the economy inc including you know as an input into um, into manufactured goods of all kinds and plastics particularly and things like that so it's it does um, you know it's a big contributor to to inflation not beyond just the actual energy prices yeah and so the, you know my only comment here and then I just have a closing thought um, is that we are unilaterally hamstringing your ability to bring inflation down. You don't have to respond to this. It's a policy position. Um, by artificially increasing the cost of energy in this country. If we simply would recognize that there is a way to get to a transition to green renewable energy and make the glide path sustainable, we could easily separate ourselves from the rest of other Western democracies with respect to that tool, which is not in your toolbox. Um, and, and hopefully we can get to that discussion and, uh, and, and embrace the idea that the transition is inevitable. It's a matter of timing and resiliency in the meantime. Um, just uh, one other question. I know the post-FOMC press conference you ruled out a 100 basis point increase. Is that a long-term view or a view based on the circumstances as you, as you see them today? In other words, uh, would that be something potentially on the table if the measures that you are uh, taking right now do not work out? I, I think we, I would never take something off the table for any and all purposes. Um, you know, the committee uh, will, that I chair will, will 
make whatever moves it believes are appropriate to, you know, to restore price stability. Okay. Well, I, uh, I, I for one, am, am glad you're at the helm. Uh, I have a lot of confidence in you, which is why I voted for your confirmation. Um, but we will be submitting some questions to the record back on the points that I made in the opening statement about transparency. There is some frustration, and I have to say it's bipartisan in terms of questions that we're asking and not getting answers to. The uh, master account is one of them, but there are other items that we'll just include for the record. Thank you, Chair Powell. Thank you for serving. Uh, thank you, Senator Tillerson. Thank you for your cooperation in this hearing today and a busy day for a lot of people. And Senator, and, and uh, Chair Powell, thank you. I have a series of questions. I have not asked my questions. I was saving them for last. Um, uh, but, and then after my questions, we'll adjourn. You, you said that Russia's in aggression in Ukraine, port congestion and COVID lockdowns in China especially have contributed to higher prices. Consumer uh, spending continues to be strong. Many Americans... Most Americans probably worry about inflation. Talk, talk for a moment, if you would, about the strengths of the American economy now and whether or not you see positive signs of prices stabilizing. Well, um, consumers are overall, not every consumer, uh, but overall the consumer sector is in very strong shape financially. There's, as you know, a very substantial accumulated quantity of, uh, of savings on balance sheets less so at the very bottom of the income spectrum, but right across the rest of the spectrum. And so that's there to support spending even in the face of higher inflation. And you're seeing consumer spending hold up uh, pretty well. Um, sorry, the rest of your question. Well, are there positive signs of prices stabilizing? So in terms of prices stabilizing, uh, you know, what we're, what we're looking for is you know, compelling evidence that inflation is coming down, and we, we don't have that, so nothing I could point to says that we have that. I will say that core PCE inflation is a, is a pretty good indicator of where underlying inflation is, is running, um, and, and it, it has moderated the, over the course of this year reasonably significantly from where it was uh, in the latter part of last year, still way uh, higher than it needs to be. We need to see a lot more progress. Uh, but just it's been running at a rate over the last, say, four, four or five months that is, that is lower than it was, at least. But again, still, still far too high. So we're looking for that. We're not really seeing it yet. Uh, you know, there, there are lots of, of stories about there, out there how this should happen, and, and uh, some people think it's very clear that it will. And, you know, until we actually do see it happen, uh, we need to keep, keep, um, keep moving. And I want to be clear from your comments publicly, your comments to this committee today, uh, you see the you you say the economy is not at the point of a recession, correct? I don't see the the likelihood of a recession as particularly elevated right now. You should know that um, no one is very good at forecasting forecasting uh, uh, recessions very far out. We're we're just we just no one's been able to do that regularly. So. But I would say that um, you know the U.S. economy for now is strong, and uh, spending is strong. Consumers are in good shape. Businesses are in good shape. Clearly, financial conditions have tightened, and you're seeing growth slow from the very elevated levels of last year associated with the reopening. You're 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 seeing the beginnings of job growth slowing to more sustainable levels, and you know there's risk in that. There's, there's obviously risk in that. We, monetary policy is famously a blunt tool, and there's risk that, uh, that weaker outcomes are certainly possible, but they're, they're not our intent. 
and as I said at the beginning of my testimony or the, the, my opening statement that uh, a couple hours ago that our economy is growing faster than China's, let me ask a few simple questions about gas prices. Uh, we've heard a lot today about gas prices from both sides. Just a few yes or no's. Does President Biden set gas prices? No. Does Congress set gas prices? Not as far as I know. Do you, as chair of the Federal Reserve, set gas prices? No. I wouldn't ask you to assign a sort of quantum responsibility, but starting with the decisions of OPEC and the world's major oil companies to not produce more, can you tell the committee um, briefly what goes into the price at the pump and ultimately what tools you have, Congress has, other government agencies have to bring the price down? It's really principally the, the price of oil, which is set globally by the actions of large, largely by the actions of large oil-producing countries, and then it's the you know the, the the refining spread, what it costs to refine, what the, what the refiners can charge, uh, to for the public consumes that that refined product. So that those are the two pieces of it, and we we don't have really our tools certainly don't work to address uh, either of those things. Uh, let me talk for a moment about housing. Uh, several have asked about the skyrocketing costs for both renters and aspiring homeowners. Uh, prices uh, over the last two years, but prices weren't that great prior to President Biden in the last administration either, we know. Last year alone, rents went up more than 11%, grew faster than wages. Short, what are the short-term and long-term effects on inflation in our economy if renters see more and more of their monthly income going to housing? Well, that will crowd out other, other kinds of spending, and that, that's, you know, the the very fast increases in housing uh, prices over the last uh, couple of years have been very broad across the country and, and, you know, unsustainably high. And that, of course, speaks to the importance of building more housing. Uh, last question I want to ask before adjournment. We've seen cryptocurrency values collapse by some $2 by some $2 trillion in markets crash over the past few weeks. Consumers losing money, workers losing jobs. The monetary policy report highlighted the risks of stable coins, digital assets that aim to maintain a stable value in order to trade cryptocurrencies. Talk for a moment, if you would, about the financial stability and monetary policy risks that these assets pose, and how are stable coins different in your answer? Include how stable coins are different from the U.S. dollar, which has the full faith and credit of the United States behind it. A stable coin is a is a an instrument really that is backed up in it. There's a, there's a, a reserve that has um, securities in it that are meant to, to assure the value of that, uh, you know, of what's, let's say it's a dollar stable coin. So it's, it's meant to assure that, that, that your interest is actually worth a dollar. So that sounds a lot like a money market fund, for example. And, and the way money market funds work is they're very, there's great transparency about what's in the reserve and their requirements about what must be in the reserve in order to preserve that that one dollar value, the the world of stable coins is is new and emerging, and uh, uh, it doesn't have uh, the, the the sort of fit for purpose regulatory scheme that it needs to. And I, and I think that's something you've been hearing a lot across the board from uh, a number of federal agencies and from from our own Treasury Department, which has been leading an effort to to try to put in place. And I, many members of Congress now have proposed new frameworks for regulating stable coins and digital assets generally, and that's, that seems like a, a wise thing. And you don't, clearly SEC, clearly CFPB, um, 
other agencies, the Fed's role in regulation of cryptocurrency in your mind is what? Well, that's that's one of the issues is who, who really does have authority over this, and that's something Congress would need to clarify. We, we would we have authority over what banks can and can't do, some banks and bank holding companies. Uh, the SEC has some jurisdiction, has jurisdiction over securities. The CFTC has, has relevant jurisdiction. So part of this will be sorting out, deciding what these things are and how they should be regulated. There are also, there are stable coins that are really used in connection with the crypto trading platforms. That's most of what happens now with stable coins. But there are also some stable coins, and, and even more potentially, that will be used in payments broadly. So that would be two different kinds of regulation there. It's just an area where Congress... And, and Congress is investing bandwidth and, and pro looking at proposals and something like that. And, and that, that's, I think, a healthy process that should lead over time to something that has bipartisan support and puts in place appropriate regulation for the whole, the whole area. Let me drill down for then my last question. What, so what, what if Congress doesn't act on, uh, I understand that uh, the, the Commodity Future Trading Commission understand what you said about SEC, does the, does the Fed, is the Fed directly involved in any of these regulatory actions uh, regarding cryptocurrency absent of Congress action? Just, just the, what, you know, we regulate banks, regulate and supervise banks, and so we, we have a say in what our banks, that, you know, the uh, Federal Reserve regulated banks and bank holding companies do with crypto assets on their balance sheets, what activities are permitted and that kind of thing. Does that of course, suggest, the OCC is, is at that table and so is the FDIC. Does that suggest that, uh, that a number of American banks are cautious because of your oversight of them on crypto? I, I mean, American banks are interested, in, are now very much exploring, are there profitable opportunities to serve our customers in this new space? And of course, what we're doing is saying, let's be sure that that takes place in a way that, that preserves and supports safety and soundness. And we've, we've had a, a you know, ongoing set of meetings and collaborations with the FDIC and, and the, the OCC. And the, that's ongoing, I guess, between us and the OCC. So that, I think that's, that's an appropriate way to carry it forward. But it's not a substitute for what I think is, a, you know, it's, it's, it's not like, it's, it's like any other major area of innovation. Ultimately, Congress will come together to create a regulatory framework that, that is more fit for purpose for it, as it has in, in so many other cases. Okay. Well, thank you, Mr. Ch Chair Powell. I uh, look forward to continue working together. For senators who wish to submit questions, those questions are due one week from today, Wednesday, June 29th. To Chair Powell, please submit your responses to these questions. For the record, for no more than 45 days from the day you receive them. Thank you again for your testimony. The committee is adjourned. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.